HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. Welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. It's Tuesday, April 12, 2022. I'm Jimmy Carboni. I'm the host here on Beer Sessions Radio. And we'll be talking about sustainability in both the brewing and distilling industries with our guests. So let's go around the room and each guest will introduce themselves. Let's start with Sean. Hey, this is Sean Lawson at Lawson's Finest Liquids in Waitsfield, Vermont. Welcome back, Sean. It's always great to have you on. Great to be here, Jimmy. Great. And, and a, a new favorite guest, Michael. Hey, everybody. I'm Michael Kowalski. Uh, I'm the director of sales and hospitality for Berkshire Mountain Distillers located in Sheffield, Massachusetts. All right. So I got, I got an email uh, recently from Lawson's. Sean, you, your, your team, you, you've been on quite a few times in the last year. And we've talked about new releases as well as with your wife um, about all the good work that, that you guys are doing. Now, this is something that we've covered in different areas, sustainability. You know, we've had on uh, sail freight as, as a sustainable transport. We've had shows in the past about water use. Um, but you guys are doing some pretty cool things. So just tell us what your, your project is, because I, I, I love it. I got a picture of it. And, um, you know, how, how you've evolved to that, that point and, and what sustainability is, you know, as a brewer. A lot of questions. Yeah, great questions, Jimmy. Um, well, since uh, the day I started out in brewing back in 2008, uh, thinking about our earth impact at Lawson's Finest, about how uh, making beer is a pretty energy intensive, water intensive, resource intensive uh, use and industry, how can I minimize that impact? How can we collectively minimize that impact? and do things in a way um, that support uh, the longevity of both our operation and um, of the earth. So from the beginning, even as a very small brewer, was constantly looking for ways to conserve water or electricity or find innovative uses for the waste products. And so 
that has evolved into one of our social impact programs that we call Green is Grand. Um, and that encompasses all of our um, conservation and sustainability efforts. Uh, the latest of which is our new solar canopy that we constructed uh, last year. And we are doing a ribbon cutting and unveiling um, upcoming just next week on Earth Day. Uh, so to mark Earth Day, we're celebrating um, Vermont's largest freestanding solar rooftop canopy uh, in Vermont. And so what this is, is a structure that we built over our um, 40 uh, vehicle parking lot across the road from the brewery and tap room. And it provides us with, or will provide us with, once we've completed a full year of generation, about 240,000 uh, kilowatt hours per year. So enough to power 22 households uh, for an entire year, average use, or enough to give us uh, about 50% of our electricity needs here at Lawson's Finest Liquids. Um, both for the brewery, um, for all the operations that happen in the brewery, for the tap room, for our wastewater treatment, uh, for all the site lighting and uh, anything that uses electricity on site here at Lawson's Finest. Um, so we're pretty excited to unveil this canopy. It's a big investment for us um, in solar and with our rooftop array up on top of the brewery, that'll get us to 60% solar powered um, overall. And what our hope is in the next couple of years, um, that we can continue to invest in solar and get us all the way to 100% uh, uh, electrical uh, generated right here in Waitsfield, Vermont. Wow. Not an easy, not an easy <laughs> place to do it at almost the 45th degree latitude. Um, Vermont's also a pretty gray state for a chunk of the year, um, but it's a sizable canopy. You get to look out over it um, from my office up here in the brewery, um, and it's a it's a beautiful. Uh, construction too. We, we added uh, some additional wood um, to the steel um, to give it a nice Vermont timber frame style aesthetic. So it's it's pretty to look at and it generates uh, a lot of power, a lot of juice out there across the road. Sean, just to take a step back, I mean, look, looking at the pictures, it's fascinating. You know, I'm, I'm used to seeing, you know, you see you see solar panels on rooftops. You see a lot of them as like solar farms. Is this a new idea? creating a, a, a parking roof, um, you know, what was the genesis of, of this project? Because I feel that, uh, you know, there's so many breweries that can learn from this. Um, you know, you've probably seen them, the smaller um, sort of parking canopies where it's the size of like sort of a tracker, you know, maybe 16 by 20 feet um, sections. Uh, that form a little bit of a shelter over a single row of parking spaces. Um, and it's a, good, it's a good way to provide double use or dual utility for parking areas. So it's taken up as, as open space um, for vehicles, but putting up um, solar panels over it is a way um, to provide an, an added use for that space. Um, this style uh, canopy is a lot bigger than anything that I've seen in the past. And it covers the entire parking lot, like a clear span um, over the 40 space parking lot. And uh, it was an idea that Sun Common, um, one of the uh, premier uh, solar, solar companies here in Vermont, brought to us uh, when we were looking at, okay, how can we generate more electricity here on site in Waitsfield, Vermont? and make our brewery uh, greener. 
Wow, man, that's a great intro, and I'm looking forward to. So you're having a launch launch for that next Friday, right? Yeah, next Friday we've got some invited um, dignitaries, um, uh, and we're going to be doing a ribbon cutting event, um, 10 a.m. Uh, on Friday, April 22nd, uh, Earth Day. Um, all are welcome, and it's going to be uh, you know right before the tap room opens up for the day. Uh, we're going to celebrate the uh, you know the inaugural kind of celebration of our of our solar canopy here in Waitsfield. Wow, congratulations. And we're going to keep Thank talking you. about that in the show. Let's go to Michael. So, Michael, you're at Berkshire Mountain Distilling in Massachusetts. Um, you know, what, what are you guys doing that uh, is we can add to the show? Sustainability and distilling in your operations. Yeah, I, the beauty of kind of being one of the pioneers of kind of restarting distilling in all of Massachusetts and a lot of the Northeast is you had to start from scratch. <laughs> and uh, Chris basically had to start basically with scraps and uh, finding every way he could, you know, partially to, to save money and to be able to put it back into the distillery. Uh, but Chris has always been an avid farmer uh, and always been an avid supporter of the community. So in the forefront of his mind was not only how the distillery could give back to the area, but how uh, the operation of the distillery could give back not only to the area, but uh, to the earth. So everything from uh, reusing our kind of spent grains uh, in our farms, uh, sometimes using our spent molasses uh, for methane capture to actually produce more energy for a really cool farm, a Pine Island farm, uh, to really simple things uh, like reusing the cardboard that we get uh, from our glassware uh, and repurposing them in our packaging materials. Uh, so literally from top to bottom, uh, we have a really interesting way of kind of reutilizing materials that we have uh, and making sure we're wasting that and wanting that. Well, you, you mentioned something about um, your trees, the cherry trees on the property and, and one of the, the whiskeys that you make. Oh, absolutely. So uh, part of the impetus for our New England corn whiskey uh, was to find a way to repurpose a lot of the old cherry trees on our farm. Uh, it's a beautiful 100-acre farm planted mostly to apples and cherry trees. And when some of those cherry trees weren't producing, uh, instead of just kind of raising them, getting rid of them, uh, we decided to repurpose those trees. We milled them down and actually created our own casks uh, so that way we could age uh, that corn whiskey in it. Unfortunately, it meant we couldn't call it bourbon, but it also makes for a really nice story. And again, just another way that we're, we're trying to be sustainable and utilize all the materials that nature gives us. No, that's that's number one. I remember um, who's who did the Curious George soundtrack, Jack Johnson, one of his songs, Re Reduce, Reuse, Recycle. It always sums it up for me. Uh, Sean, I bet you know that album, don't you? I do. Yes, sir. <laughs> Jack Johnson. So you guys so back. So Vermont. So. You know, when, when we talk about whatever it's new green deal or climate change, um, I, I I do feel that that talking to breweries is is a, an important part of it because you guys are definitely, I mean, you have costs, you're balancing all these things all the time. So, like, what were some of the early things you you did at Lawson's Finest? You know, related to trying to save money, reuse things saving energy you're not just doing it as a mission you're actually doing it because it's it's also practical right yeah exactly like it starts with um almost every brewery uh sends their uh their spent grain so there's a lot of um 
you know, barley that you use or, or other grains that are used in the brewing process. And then at the end of uh, brewing, you need to uh, dispose of it somewhere. And so the one of the best and highest uses for it is uh, feeding it uh, to animals. So from the beginning, you know, I found a farm to work with and I would... I would actually haul it down in the back of my car when I was brewing on a one barrel system <laughs> and, and like 20 gallon um, Rubbermaid cans, try not to knock them, any of them over um, down to the farm. And the funny thing is that now 14 years later and a lot more scale, you know, we've got a big trailer uh, that we customized uh, so that it could hold um, a little bit of liquid in the bottom and it's easy for the farmer to dump out and it's parked under our spent grain uh, chute um, from the brewery here in Waitsfield and he comes and picks it up every day that we brew and hauls it off to his uh, to his beef cattle um, and he's like it's the they love it it's like candy so it's a great it's a great reuse uh, that's that that closes the loop on the cycle um, and, and puts it to good use. The other things that even as a very small brewery looked at were um, energy efficiency. So how can we um, install measures in the brewery or invest a little bit more in capital up front to save energy, uh, uh, create more efficiency? And over the long term, it saves money too. So it makes good business sense. So one great example is what's called a free air system. There's actually a company uh, that was bought up that used to be called Free Air, uh, based here in Vermont, and they designed these air exchange systems using uh, controllers, um, fans, and ports in your walk-in cooler. So in a climate where it's below freezing for a big chunk of the year, we use the outside air to uh, cool down the walk-in coolers and provide refrigeration for free, essentially. I mean, there's the cost of running a small fan, um, but it turns off the main evaporator fans, uh, uses a small circulation fan, and then an intake and outtake fan. And we've applied that technology at each stage that we've grown um, to utilize that free cold air during the cold season. So that's one nice example of just saving energy. Um, another one from the early days is water and wastewater conservation. So it's a challenge for really any brewery and I imagine distillery too, is there's a fair amount of wastewater that we produce. So for me, it was how much of that can I side stream and divert? Um, so the slurries and the, the wastewater that, con that contains a lot of solids like yeast and hops um, or a little bit of grain would side stream that and that would go down to the farm as well um, in totes and the farmer would use it in his um, either in his manure pit and it would get spread out um, as fertilizer out on the land or would go into one of his composting uh, piles to provide a little bit more organic material and um, some liquid for the compost. So just a couple of small examples of where it started and then as we've grown um, you know, we've continued to invest in, in equipment to uh, increase efficiency, save energy, and over the long run, um, it pays for itself because it makes good business sense. Wow, that's great. You know, definitely, I don't think people realize just how much water is used in all kinds of processing. I mean, forget leather and factories, but, you know, these days, almond milk and, and other mm. food processing. I mean, I had on, um, I'm just curious for you. What's your ratio of water in to how much uh, liquid beer goes out? 
because I know there's like some kind of benchmark, isn't there, of what's what's considered good and and what is wasteful. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I don't know what the latest um, up-to-date industry benchmark is for best practices. Um, I do know that we are achieving an excellent um, uh, water use to beer produced ratio. We're down to about uh, 3.5 gallons of water used for every gallon of beer produced. Uh, and that's pretty low. I think, you know, some breweries are as high as nine or 10, um, uh, ratio to one. And I, I think one of the industry benchmarks is somewhere around five as a best practice that if you achieve five to one, uh, you're doing really well. So like, wh- what do you use water for in a brewery? Cause I mean, it's, it's definitely important. Um, cleaning is probably the biggest user of water that ter- that ends up as wastewater. Um, but we installed in uh, our newest brewery here in Waitsfield a clean and place system that recaptures as much of the um, cleaning water that uses chemicals as possible. Um, test it regularly to make sure the efficacy F- is still there, the pH is right. Um, but uh, that's one way we've been able to reduce our wastewater production. Um, some of it is absorbed into the grain. Some of it goes up the stack and steam. And of course, the, the remainder ends up in the, in the beer. Yeah, I remember, maybe it was nine years ago, we interviewed the founders of Full Sail out of Oregon. And it was the first time we talked about the ratio. And they were talking about four, four to one, uh, you know, water in to beer out was, was really good. So it sounds like you're, you're really uh, at the top of it. Um, Michael, back to this almond milk. I know. I know you. I'm going to give you some <laughs> props because you, you you went to Culinary Institute of America. You've been a chef, sommelier, and all that. But um, I, I've heard that like you know beers beer can be sustainable and a lot of food products. But I heard that almond milk, like some of these, I call them like wrongly processed foods. How, how much water does <laughs> almond milk use? It's like ten ten times the amount of of almond milk that you get, right? Yeah, it is some ridiculous number, like 10 or 15 to 1. And for me, the favorite stat for that is the fact that it actually takes more water to make almond milk than it does to keep cows and cattle hydrated to produce regular milk. Wow. Like that for me is mind-blowing. Yeah, no, that's that's why we're having this conversation, because it's it's going so deep. And, and back to Sean, I want to ask you, I, I love the specifics, because I know you've like, as you evolve, you keep getting better, which is awesome. Um, including your beer, but you mentioned the spent grain dump truck. I know you always have this image of like, like my, my friend who's uh, got brewers crackers. He he was started off going through dumpsters of of spent grain and baking small batches of crackers. You think about this dry stuff that you got to shovel out. So, what is the spent grain dump truck, and and why do you add water to it? Oh well, it comes out of the uh, the spent grain comes out of the uh, the louder ton uh, when we're done brewing, um, and it's still pretty wet. And so when it goes into a trailer, um, if it's not a watertight uh, trailer, it you know it it leaks out. And we're located here in Waitsfield, right next to a wetland area, and so we didn't want that you know that essentially what what becomes. It's good stuff, but it's it's wastewater once it runs over the ground and 
picks up dirt and any other sort of contaminants that, you know, oil or whatever's leaked out from cars and things going through the driveway here. Um, and so we wanted to contain that. So we, we custom built a, a trailer. Um, it's a standard trailer that goes behind a pickup truck, but it's got a good size bin on it. And uh, we, we, we customized the rear um, door so that it was sealed um, to contain the liquid. And then um, we welded in a, like a 45 degree plate at that back end. So the farmer could just crank up the trailer. It's got a, you know, hydro manual hydraulic uh, piston and he cranks up the trailer to dump out the grain when he hauls it over to the farm. It keeps the liquid in there and it doesn't drain out on the ground and run into the wetlands here um, next to the brewery. Hey, Michael, when you're at places like Culinary Institute of America, you know, these leading, you know, institutions for food and drink and everything, uh, do they talk about this in the courses or, or in their practices? You know, for people studying culinary, maybe not so much. Uh, but the the program that I went through is actually an amazing master's program, uh, basically for beverage management and restaurant management. Uh, and when I studied out in Napa Valley, it was all about focusing on, you know, sustainability for wine producers and, you know, even for citrus and fruit production. Uh, so, you know, you, you are educated and you do have those resources if you're curious. Uh, but, you know, there can always be uh, more of a focus on, you know, teaching everybody, especially in the culinary world where there can be a lot of waste if you're not, you know, even maintaining your products properly uh, to really understand that. You know, that that piece of protein that you're using or those vegetables that you're using are coming from somewhere and they need to be treated, you know, properly uh, and, you know, to make sure that you don't waste. I mean, there's an amazing chef by the name of uh, Massimo Batura out in uh, Italy who has created this whole campaign just around, you know, finding ways for the everyday person to maybe not waste as much from their cooking. So instead of kind of throwing out the the tail of, you know, the lettuce that you just cut, putting that in what they call a, a donor compost bin, where that compost and that piece of lettuce might actually grow something in that compost bin later on. Uh, all those little things can, can really make a, a big difference. Yeah. Hey, Sean, uh, let's talk about beer, because uh, I know next Friday, uh, what beer are we going to drink uh, when you when you have the canopy opening? I'm hoping it's going to be a sip of sunshine because that sunshine is what's going to really help charge the entirety of that building. And I know for me, that's always been one of my favorite beers. Uh, when I used to work at a really high-end hotel up in the Adirondacks, I may or may not have made several trips over to Vermont to pick up uh, some of that uh, for our discerning customers. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be one of the beers in our sunshine family. You know it. So we've got our little sip. We've got our sip of sunshine. We've got our double sunshine, uh, which is where the sunshine craze started at Lawson's Finest. Uh, and, of course, I've got triple sunshine. So uh, take your pick, Jimmy. Well, I, I heard that there's a new one with uh, ruby red grapefruit. That's right. We've got it out right now. Um, it's available um, for listeners all across the Northeast currently. Um, we've got it out uh, for March and April. Um, it's our double sunshine uh, with ruby red grapefruit. Uh, and this is an idea I came up with uh, when I was down in Florida visiting with a small brewer, um, a place called Orchid Island Brewery down in Vero Beach. 
Um, and when I met the owner uh, and uh, brewer there, uh, we were talking about citrus-infused beers, and he struck up these friendships with some of the growers um, and the university nearby uh, where they're growing experimental varieties. So he had his hands on some really cool different varieties of citrus. He sent me a bunch of pictures, and he helped us procure um, our first batch of uh, ruby red grapefruit peel that's used in finishing the beer. And uh, we infuse our uh, original home run beer, Double Sunshine, uh, with ruby red grapefruit. Uh, we use dried peel in the kettle. Um, and then once it goes into the fermenter, uh, we add some grapefruit puree. And then when it gets to the finished beer tank, uh, we dose it for 24 hours uh, with ruby red grapefruit peel um, to give it one more layer of aroma and uh, beautiful, juicy grapefruit flavor. So super excited to share this with all of our fans and uh, hopefully some new fans out there as well. Uh, because we've never released the Double Sunshine uh, beer outside of Vermont. This, of course, is a special version with the Ruby Red in it, uh, but it's never been distributed across the nine states of the Northeast where we uh, currently uh, have our other beers out. So what, what about brewing with fruit? Have, have you made other beers with, with fruit before? Yeah, we've done a series with our space in between. That's a beer that doesn't fit into any style. Uh, neatly, which is why I called it the space in between, in between styles. It's it's kind of hazy. It's a little tart. It's brewed with a lot of oats and wheat, and we use uh, some funky Southern Hemisphere hops in there. We've done a series uh, that we're going through this year with uh, passion fruit. Uh, currently out is the blood orange, uh, pineapple, uh, and uh, those are the three that we're releasing this year. We've done that that beer fruited. And uh, it's just a really nice compliment. My approach, uh, Lawson's Finest, is pretty delicate. You know, some fruited beers are very heavy-handed or just over-the-top fruit in your face. Um, the, I like to approach it with balance so that the fruit character uh, is right there with the beer and works to complement the beer rather than uh, overpowering it. You know, for, for some of our home brewers, when you were just brewing small batch, did you ever... Uh brew with fruit at all back then not in the beginning it's more in i would say in the last five years that i started playing around with uh fruited varieties of our beer and what, what are some pointers like i mean you mentioned the peel i kind of understand that but what yeah, how, does, like, how does the peel impact the flavor um it really adds a nice bit of juicy uh flavor profile because we add it cold so we add it to the finished beer um, and because it's a short contact time, it doesn't extract a lot of um, bitterness or astringency from the peel. Um, and so that's one technique. Um, another technique is we use juice or puree when the beer is actively fermenting. Um, for your home brewers uh, out there, you want to get a juice that's been um, pasteurized or aseptically passed, uh, pasteurized if you've uh, aseptically passed packaged geez spit it out <laughs> packaged uh so that you're if you're adding it on the cold side um you're not introducing any potential um beer spoilage organisms to your beer um, and then we use a little bit of dried peel um in the in the kettle on the hot side that's going to add a little bit of flavor but more uh 
more of a like you get of a little bit of a stringency and citrus character um, out of it on that side. So I use those different techniques to layer in the fruit flavor in different ways. Wow, that's nice. What about you, Michael? Are you are you have you been around any spirits with uh, fruit peel, dried peel? I know in like Amaro's, it's it's kind of oh, standard. Oh, absolutely. I mean, for us, that's our Greylock gin in a nutshell right there. I mean, your top three botanicals in making a gin are the juniper, shore, and coriander, but it is always some sort of citrus peel, uh, and it always has some really nice oils in it. So, you know, not only does it add some great flavor, but I'm sure Sean will also tell you that it also adds some mouthfeel and some nice body uh, to whatever beverage you're making with it as well. Uh, and for us... I applaud Sean for really kind of getting out there and working with, you know, cool farmers and, and producers of fruits, because that's a really great way to kind of know where a lot of your ingredients are coming from, which is another part of sustainability, right? Being able to actually talk to some of these farmers and talk to where some of your materials are coming from, making sure that they're being kind of sourced uh, properly and ethically, and then being able to utilize that product, which frankly is going to be a superior product to some of the other stuff that you're going to use. Like for us, we've actually made custom gins uh, with some guys like Dan Barber from Blue Hill at Stone Barns. They've got a beautiful farm program out there. Uh, and we made a gin utilizing some of the really interesting ginger and turmeric rhizomes that they were making. So we used those uh, as kind of the key flavor components uh, for that custom gin that they use in their beverage program. So what, what, what do you do with like, so the, the ginger, I know what a rhizome is, ginger or turmeric, um, what are your steps? Are you putting that in the, the base? Yeah. So for us, it's basically like the same way that you would make tea, where you basically have to steep that ingredient in a hot liquid uh, is kind of how we make essentially an extraction. I mean, fortunately for me, my background is also in chemistry and biology. I double majored at Case Western and, you know. It's all about, you know, whether you can extract flavor in, you know, the ethanol phase or the polar phase or, you know, the oils in like a what they call a nonpolar phase and kind of knowing your ingredients that you're using uh, on the whole to enhance other flavors. So one of the reasons our London dry gin, the Greylock gin is so delicious is we certainly, you know, we use that citrus peel. We have the juniper that has some more earthy oils, uh, but then we add like angelica root and orris root that we grow right there on the property uh, that add, again, that little bit of something extra that those kind of earthy flavonoids that also help pull some of those beautiful oils uh, and flavors from the citrus peel. So knowing your ingredients and knowing how they kind of work together is hugely important. And fortunately for us, we've got a hundred acre farm where we're growing a lot of our own botanicals for our gins. So we know where our ingredients are coming from. Uh, and we work with farmers, like our corn for our bourbon and our corn whiskey. A lot of it comes from a farmer two miles down the road that you know we, we see out for a beer every so often. Uh, and the rest of the grains that we're sourcing right now, for the most part, source from within like 25 to 30 miles of the distillery. So we're supporting our local farmers who are also kind of practicing sustainability on their farms. So it's a awesome feedback loop for us. Great. But Michael, with your Greylock gin, with all those great botanicals, what's a, a custom drink that you would recommend to a bar or restaurant? Ooh, I, for, for me also being a sommelier, I'm a sucker for sparkling cocktails. So a French 75, you can never go wrong with. 
Uh, it's just, you know, some uh, a sugar cube, some lemon juice, about an ounce and a half of gin, and then you fill the rest of the flute with sparkling wine. Something that simple, uh, but on a, on a nice spring day as we're moving into finally spring up here in the Northeast, uh, it's my go-to drink. Wow. All right, we're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. Hey, hey, welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. Join us and become a member at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Hey, Sean, so like you've learned so much and you talked a little bit about spent grain, energy efficiencies, solar power. Um, is Are we missing anything or is it really about your focus? Because I've, I've just I know someone who just got an electric vehicle and and they're trying it out as like a prototype to deliver. I mean, I don't know. It's a it's a holistic approach, and um, Michael brings up a couple of gr- really great points, um, both from uh, process, like talking about making the product, um, and how uh, we look to source ingredients 
um, you know, in, in brewing, we use commodity ingredients often, you know, that they're sourced uh, globally, really. So wherever you can look to source your ingredients closer to home, um, it lowers your, your carbon footprint and the amount of energy it takes to get that ingredient to you. Um, and even more importantly, forging relationships with the producers so you can, you can know how they produce that ingredient and are they applying sustainable practices themselves? Um, are they, are they like-minded in, in terms of thinking about conserving uh, resources? Um, but the other point that, that Michael brought up is about, um, you know, using those local ingredients to infuse the, the finished product. And I, I just wanted to go back to the product for a second to say one of the keys that I think Michael would agree with is, um, is adding those uh, botanicals and the peel of citrus to the finished, near, near finished liquids have alcohol in them. And so that was one of the important points of adding the peel at the very end of the process um, in making the beer uh, that citrus infused with fresh peel is that you've got alcohol in there and the alcohol um, helps extract uh, those aromas, those volatile oils uh, and the mouthfeel and flavors from, from the peel. But pulling back for a second, Jimmy, to your question about, you know, what are we missing? What's in the big picture? It's really trying to think holistically and taking a look at every spac aspect of the operation. Um, so currently we're going through um, the process of hopefully becoming a B certified um, corporation. So looking at, um, you know, both our earth impact and our people impact, like how do we take care of our people and how do we take care of the earth in the way that we, um, look at supply chain, you know, our, how are we sourcing our ingredients? What are we doing on the other side with waste? And so uh, it's really taking a holistic look at everything. So a few more examples of, of how, you, how you look at that holistically. Jimmy, you brought up, you know, driving an e-vehicle. I think, you know, converting as much as we can to electrical and powering that electrically from the sun is the way of the future for transportation and for other energy intensive use. You know, being able to store that sun power in batteries and then turn it on when we need to. So it doesn't always have to be uh, when the sun is shining is another key. And then bringing it down back down locally. I, I have an EV myself, I, I love it. And um, it's got a lot of zip to it as well. But um, thinking about our business, uh, we look at all those ingredients from sourcing the foods that we serve at the tap room, hyper local, working as, with as many local makers, local cheese makers, a, a local person that does charcuterie. Um, we've got a guy up the road that makes all the pretzels that we serve. Uh, we make our own jams uh, in-house to serve with the food. All of the food waste um, goes to the same farm. Uh, where we send our spent grain and it either goes into their compost or they feed it to the pigs, depending on uh, the stock and the, the time of year. Um, and then we look at other ways that we can uh, reduce, reuse, recycle. So you think about all the waste that beer produce. So what about all the plastic? So you, we use a lot of pallets. Every single one of them is wrapped with plastic shrink wrap. And so we have a local program with Casella here in Vermont where they've found an end use to recycle that plastic film. So we save all the plastic film. We save all the empty grain bags. 
Um, and those go both back to recycling use, but better even yet is to reuse. And so the Vermont Brewers Association and a group that's called the Green Cohort here in Vermont, uh, which is a group of breweries that are, you know, trying to incorporate sustainability into everything they do. Um, one of their efforts is reusing pack techs. So we're collecting uh, pack techs, those plastic holders, the hard plastic on top of the beer cans and we're reusing them. Our brewery can't reuse them with the, our, we have a machine applicator. So if they're bent or slightly misshapen in any way, it will jam up the machine. But there are a lot of small breweries that are applying those applicators by hand or with a small mechanical applicator um, you know, that's operated manually. And so it'll work for them. And a lot of brewers are looking at that as a way to both reuse and save money. So a lot of different examples um, like that. And I think it's taking a holistic look at everything that we do to how can we reduce energy inputs? How can we reduce waste outputs? Because the, you know, the climate crisis is, is real. It's, it's upon us. It's going to take everybody doing something to be a part of the solution. Yeah. Well, I will say I've got a bunch of those. Wait, what are those those four pack tops called? Pack techs. Pack techs. Pack techs. I got a whole a whole bin in my basement, <laughs> and I think my wife was talking about using them uh, for art kids art project. Um, but yeah, I always wonder about it. it. It's 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 so much work, and it's so important. I know, like just when I had a small bar restaurant, it was like we used to try to recycle, and then we realized that our commercial hauler was really just taking everything and putting it in one truck. Um, so there, there's so many steps involved. I think, I think as a smaller business too, you, it, a lot of it's on you unless, unless your suppliers and um, you know, your waste carters are, are really playing it. Um, oh, 100%. If you don't do it, especially as a small business where you can't, you know, invest in a company to come in and take care of that stuff for you, it's on you. Yeah, I mean, is he even doing? If you're in the city doing compost, it's, you know, it's like where do you keep it? And you have to deal with rats too. So, um, we this is a really good conversation because um, it seems to be on the, you know, there's there's ways to improve things, and and I I love that you talked about the the solar the batteries for solar power because, um, I mean, you you seem to Sean, you seem to feel like there's a will, there's a way, and you you keep working at it. Um, is that a good lesson for the rest of us? I think so. And I, I think hopefully the, you know, the, you know, commercial and industrial scale, um, utilities, I'm seeing it here in Vermont. I know a couple of companies, um, you know, a colleague of mine that has, uh, that owns a solar company and they're doing a bunch of projects that are, uh, they only work on utility scale projects. So big solar projects where they're putting in um, solar fields and all of them have storage capacity associated with them um, so that they could work like a, a small utility um, with larger businesses or with smaller utilities to make sun power uh, stored in the battery. So use it use it when the sun is shining, but also have that backup uh, storage capacity so you can turn it on uh, when the sun is not shining. And it seems like that is one of one of the many parts of the solution to the future, because eventually, you know, my ultimate goal at Lawson's Finest is to become 
uh, you know, net carbon zero. But how do you do that without, uh, you know, replacing all the fossil fuels that are different parts of the inputs? You know, I, I don't want to do it just on paper. How can we do it concretely? Yeah. And, and as, as a brewer or as a distiller in Massachusetts, I mean, does the state play a role in this? Like, is Vermont taking the lead or, or, or you're just working with the people that are taking the lead, Sean? Um, it tends to be working with the, the people that are taking the lead. Um, the state of Vermont has uh, some incentives for, um, for solar power. Um, you know, EV, you mentioned electric vehicles. Um, there are incentives that the utility, Green Mountain Power, is offering for businesses that install um, EV chargers. And that was another part of the solar canopy I didn't mention, which is we installed um, a dozen uh, EV chargers, uh, level two chargers uh, underneath the canopy um, that are part of the whole electrification program. And we provide those to the public free of charge because I want to encourage people to consider having electric vehicles and um, converting, moving away from, from gas powered vehicles. I think, you know, in 10 years, most people are going to be driving electric vehicles. Wow. Well, Michael, uh, what about you? We mentioned some other industries like, you know, everything's water intensive. I remember a couple years ago, there, there were some breweries in California, like Bear Republic, that I heard they were not that their local, their municipalities would not approve them to expand because of just the lack of water. Um, what, what about the wine industry? I know you're familiar with that. Yeah, I mean it's it's a huge thing in uh, in California. Actually, I know the guys over at Bear Republic really well, and actually, uh, <laughs> they work with a distillery out there, Charbet, to make. Uh, a beer whiskey like we do. Uh, theirs is called the the Racer Five. Uh, but yeah, water is the hottest commodity, especially in California. But even for us at the distillery, where like you, I'm sure Sean and all of their equipment uh, at Lawson's Finest uh, is mostly steam jacketed to produce heat for your lauder tons. Uh, and for us, we find a way to take that steam heat and all of that liquid. Uh, and we actually push it into the distillery and we use what's called cogeneration, where we're taking that heat that we that's water that's been heated to steam uh, our lauder ton uh, and actually use it to heat the building. Uh, and our cooling water that we use to, again, bring that stuff down to temperature, we reuse that as irrigation in our greenhouses. Uh, so for us, it's all about the water because at the end of the day, yes, energy is going to be a huge commodity, but so is water. It's one of our, our most important and scarcest resources on the earth. And I do have to give Sean a lot of props for putting in that uh, solar generation, uh, basically farm on your property. It is not easy to do, and it is not uh, a small investment. It's something we've been looking into at the distillery, uh, and it's it takes a commitment to make that actually happen. So again, kudos to you, Sean, on that. Thank you, Michael. Appreciate that. So this is exciting. I mean, like I said, we've talked about some of these things before, like just going through last year, like our friends at Hudson Valley Malt have been part of the sale freight, sending some malt down the Hudson River with Schooner Apollonia. And the e-vehicle is Valley Malt in Hadley, Mass., um, she she just got an e-vehicle and posted it, and she was really proud of it. Um, but there's so many stories like that. But, yeah, it really is a state of day. Sean, last thing is energy efficiency. Like, I've got, a, I think, a dishwasher. It takes forever. 
but it's supposed to be energy and water efficient. Um, do, does energy efficiency have to mean that like your performance suffers? Not at all. No, when we uh, when we built the brewery here in 2018, uh, you know, you asked about in incentives or the state, and there were there were actually a lot of good incentives for installing um, the most energy efficient equipment uh, when it comes to motors, um, compressors, and then your lighting. So lighting throughout our facilities, everything is LED lighting. Um, it requires very little electricity. Um, it performs really well. And then on the equipment side, um, using the, you know, the very best, again, it costs more upfront. That's the hard part. Um, but the investment in very efficient state-of-the-art equipment is that over time, if you've got the long view, if you can take five or 10 years for the payback, um, that extra added cost is going to give you savings um, beyond those first handful of years. Um, and the state of Vermont uh, and efficiency Vermont offered incentives that helped out with making that decision uh, to spend more, to be more capital intensive. One of the things Michael mentioned about, you know, recapturing uh, the steam and using it in, in different ways um, reminded me of this little but cool innovative uh, feature in our brewery. And that is that we have a stack uh, condenser. So on the kettle, we're boiling the wort, it's sending off all this waste heat, and we're not able to capture all of it, but why not capture as much as you can? And so we've got a stack condenser, and that is, it's a series of pipes and coils inside the steam stack that vents to outside of the building, and what would just be waste heat is used to heat up water that goes into our big hot liquor tank, which is our hot water tank, and it preheats the water up to 200 degrees, um, and we use all of that water for both brewing and uh, cleaning uh, in the brewery. So it's one small way uh, that we're you know, trying to implement efficiency uh, and recapture of energy at every step. Wow, this has been really educational. Um, Michael, do you have a, a question for Sean? Because I know you're you're a wealth of knowledge and one of our my my new favorite uh, hospitality gurus. So thanks, thanks for we're glad you got to talk to you a couple weeks ago. Yeah, hey, I'm always happy to come on, Jimmy. Uh, you've got some great guests, and again, Sean here is 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 no exception. Uh, I, I did want to give another shout out to Hudson Valley Malt and the Nestles. I grew up uh, with one of their sons. They're an awesome company over there in Germantown. So it's great that you've talked with them as well, Jimmy. Some some really great people. Uh, for Sean, I, I guess the obvious question is, you know, when are you going to come hang out with us and participate in our craft brewers whiskey project? Uh, <laughs> but aside of that, uh, what have been some of the biggest challenges you guys have have come into in terms of trying to be more, you know, economically friendly and more sustainable. I mean, again, that that canopy of yours is a huge step. And I wish <laughs> hopefully it's going to happen for us in the next couple of years. But uh, what advice uh, would you give to somebody looking to help make their brewery more efficient? Well, some of the challenges we've run into is um, when you look at the waste side is like, what do we what do we do with this stuff? You know, if there's not an outlet, if there's not um, uh, a way to recycle um, a particular material, um, feeling kind of stuck. Um, so that's one area. And it's great that um, there's a lot 
there are a lot of innovative thinkers and a lot of people that are pushing on that front and collectively working on it. Because I'll tell you, five years ago, there wasn't an there wasn't a system in place. There wasn't an easy way to, you know, recycle the plastic film, um, to have a home for the grain bags, um, to you know have a collective that's reusing the 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 pack text. So um, we're making progress in that area. Um, you know, one of the other big challenges is we're in a rural area, so um, we had to. There's no municipal wastewater. Um, treatment plant here in Waitsfield. So we had to build our own. Um, and that was, I mean, it was a huge investment for us um, to build a pretreatment plant. Uh, but it was the only way to make a small production brewery feasible. Um, and it was really important for us to stay here in the Mad River Valley. We're really committed to this um, community. So that was, that was a big hurdle for us. But um, thankfully, we were able to pull off the financing um, and make it all happen. And then, um, huge. And then, uh, you know, we just got to get a date on the calendar. Cause I definitely want to come and sip some craft whiskey. <laughs> there you go. Hey, you're, you're welcome anytime. And I'm, I'm happy to come up to you as well. I spend a lot of time up, up in your neck of the woods. Uh, we recently did a, a project with the guys at uh, long trail and otter Creek, uh, Nick, who I'm sure you, you know, I'm sure. Well, Right uh, so anytime, my friend. Yeah, they, they, Sean, they did a great project where six years ago they distilled uh, beer from 12 different breweries. And uh, they've been releasing the last year um, three at a time of, of these specific whiskeys. In fact, the one you had last two weeks ago, Michael, was the stout, right? A, a, yeah, it a was uh, Long stout. Trails Unearthed. Yeah, it, yeah. Was, it was phenomenal stuff. And Nick, the brewer, uh, good friends with our distiller, Michael Sherry, who is a wizard. <laughs> so it's just a really fun way to collaborate and, and take an amazing beer and make it into a really fun kind of distilled spirit of the beer. Wow. Well, la last pitch, the canopy. <laughs> what, what do you call it, Sean? Because I know it's, it's got to have a name to it. Yeah, you know, we don't have a we don't have a whimsical name for it yet. So I appreciate you um, providing the impetus to come up with one. But we just call it the solar canopy right now. But I think you've given me a challenge, and we've got to come up with uh, we got to come up with a shiny name for it. Go back. To, I, I will throw go my back hat to in the Curious and George. You you do it, Michael. But go back to Curious George. <laughs> We'll 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 uh, uh, throw a hat in the ring for the storer of sunshine. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, you might start naming beers after after the canopy. Why not? It's cool. So and the dub, double sunshine. So big shout out to uh Berkshire Mountain Distillers and their craft craft brewers whiskey project, which has been really cool. And I have a bottle of the Oma Gang Three Philosophers distilled whiskey uh ready to taste soon. And this uh Lawson Finest, the double sunshine, ruby red grapefruit. Uh, really excited to, to be partaking in that and next friday if you're listening april 22nd head up to uh waitsfield vermont and uh you're gonna crack oh what are you gonna do you're gonna cut a ribbon yeah we got a giant ribbon to cut and um, <laughs> we're gonna celebrate uh you know making electrons from sunshine all right well thanks sean always and and michael uh you guys thanks for joining me here on heritage radio network big shout out to our engineer armin spengen and our Producing intern Alex Tran. I'm Jimmy Carboni. We'll catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Woo. Thank you. 
Beer Sessions Radio is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.